God's word says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every morning, I'm sorry, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And For your lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning. From every beast, I'll require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is God's word. Last week I talked about the idea that God's story has four basic parts to it, and it helps us really read the Bible and understand kind of what part we're in. It begins with the creation of the world. The fall is part two, redemption, and then restoration. And restoration is is more than um, just a simple fix. It's a complete and total replacement. It's not just a better life or a better world. It's a complete recreation of all things where the old is gone and the new has come. And as Noah steps out of the boat, Genesis 9 kind of gives us a picture of what this recreation was like and will be like. If you were to put Genesis 9, 8 and 9-ish, and mirror that with Genesis 1 and 2, you kind of have a repeat of the creation story. If you remember, uh, many months ago when we began in Genesis, the Bible begins by declaring the existence of God, but then says that the Spirit is is hovering over the face of the deep, implying that there's water covering everything. Obviously, as Genesis uh, 8 and 9 uh, have been unfolded in the story of Noah, we see that the whole world is covered in water. In the beginning of Genesis 8, we see the wind, which is always and often synonymous with the Spirit, blowing, and so land begins to appear as the waters recede, very similar to creation. When the waters are covering, the Spirit was hovering, God began to speak, 
Eventually, land began to appear. And then, God continued to create, and He created trees and animals and things of that nature, just as the land begins to appear, and eventually the ark opens up, and eventually the animals come out, and they begin to reappear, if you will, on the earth. And eventually, the pinnacle of God's creation in Genesis 1 and 2, the creation of mankind, you have Noah and his family, also reappear on the earth after all mankind had been wiped out. And so you have this kind of retelling, if you will, of creation. And if it's not more clear that that's happening, God speaks the very same words to Noah and his family that he told Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2. It was the creation mandate. It was kind of like, this is your job. This is what you're going to do. Specifically, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God is literally recreating what he had destroyed. Essentially, he commands Noah not just to make lots of babies and fill the earth, but it is to build God-glorifying culture through God-glorifying families. Be his representatives on earth again. But there's one very absent thing from Genesis chapter 9 that was in Genesis chapter 2. And this is the shift, this is the turn, if you will, particularly in how man is going to relate with God. In Genesis chapter 2, there was a command given. And the command was, do not eat from this one tree. Avoid the fruit of this one tree, for the moment you eat of it, you will die. That command is not given this time. God establishes a new covenant. Perhaps it's best to say a new kind of covenant. There will not be a blessing now or a curse that is dependent upon their obedience. There's an invitation into relationship. If you just compare the two covenants, if you will, the two promises, the two declarations by God, with Noah, he doesn't announce what mankind needs to do. He actually and quite simply declares what they need to believe. What they need to believe. And therein lies the distinctive difference between these covenants. Now, Genesis 9, it's important to understand, is not the beginning of just this global do-over. As if when the corruption, the wickedness began to thrive and, and, and flow on the earth, God went, oh no, I didn't see this coming. Let's wipe it clean and start all over and try this again as if he made a mistake. That's not what happened. And knowing that, as we see God start over, it seems, we have to look at the contrast of what's going on. The two different kinds of way God is choosing to relate to His people. Because in a very real sense, one didn't work. And that's not because God didn't know it wouldn't work, it's for us. The second one will. Sin, without question, grieved and grieves God, but it never, ever, ever surprises Him. And God's plan for redemption was written and decided before there was anything created. And the sin of men can never, ever, 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 ever hinder 
or thwart the plans of God. God will complete his plan despite and even through the sins of men. And so what we see in Genesis 9 is a a very markedly different kind of covenant, a different kind of promise, a new kind of relationship. Genesis 1 through 8, among other things, is very clear proof that men will not be able to fulfill any commitment to obey and save themselves. They won't. But Genesis 9 is the introduction of how God is going to have relationship with men. How, despite that fact, he is going to relate to men. So he calls men into this thing he calls a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship. And I agree with Tim Keller who rightly says that covenant relationships with God are always saving relationships. Covenant relationships with God are always saving relationships. You go, what does that mean? Well, it means simply this. God does not invite us into relationship or make promises to and with us because He needs us. God enters into relationship, a covenant relationship with us in order to fix us, in order to save us. He never enters into, or best probably more positively said, he always enters into a relationship with anyone or anything with a plan to restore it. And that's what makes it interesting as we begin to see the kinds of things in this covenant that he chooses to make relationship with. You see, men left by themselves, as we've seen in Genesis 1 through 6 particularly, without God, the trajectory of men and this world is very clear. Knowing that the wickedness of men is still evil, always, and God says that after Noah comes out of the ark, which means Noah and his family are in the same boat, they will continually pursue evil. And we'll see that next week when the evil is very evident in his own family. But Noah, knowing that, he has to wonder, right? Put yourself in, he has to wonder, what is going to stop this from happening again? What is going to stop the world from getting just as dirty as it was, just as corrupt as it was, and just as having another disaster like we did? Men need something more than just commands. And they need actually something more than just a commitment to not kill you. And that's just what they get. God makes a covenant promise to Noah that reveals his intention to do more than just not kill, but actually restore relationship, every relationship that sin destroyed. See, sin destroys three different relationships. It restores uh, our relationship with creation itself. It uh, destroys... Sin destroys our relationship uh, with one another, and it destroys ultimately our relationship with God. And God, in this covenant, shows how those are going to all be restored. It begins by this concept of God remembering. We saw it first in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, where it says, God remembered Noah and all the beasts. 
And then he makes a wind blow immediately afterwards. It's important to understand when it, the Bible says that God remembers, it's always attached to an action toward the thing that he is remembering or the person that he is remembering. It's an action word. It's not God remembers because he almost forgot. When it says God remembers, it means God is right now moving. God is acting. God is doing something to fulfill a promise that He has made. This is obviously evident in Genesis 8.1, but as you read deeper into the Old Testament, you'll see that God says the same kinds of things to Abraham when He remembers Abraham and then saves His nephew Lot from the destruction that comes upon Sodom and Gomorrah. We hear it again when it says God remembers Rachel, who was the love of Jacob's life, but yet barren. And when God says He remembers Rachel, she is found with child. Or again, when God remembers Jacob and his people and calls Moses to go back into Egypt and help save his people. So remembering a promise, when God remembers a promise that's better understood as a declaration of action, which will be important as we see this covenant unfold. And he gives us a picture as he sees this covenant unfold of, of what he promises to do even if we don't see it happening in front of us. And so the first thing God is going to promise to do is that he's going to promise to save creation itself. We need to understand that God's redemptive promise is his, his Goal to restore is not just about humans. God enters into with Noah here a covenant relationship that includes Noah and includes his children and includes all the creatures in creation itself. And if we understand what a covenant relationship as a saving relationship, God is saying, I am going to restore the world, the whole creation. This is really important. Because as Noah and his family first walk out of the ark, God declares a change in the relationship between man and creation. They're going to fear him. They're going to fear them because they're going to be eating them. It says in verse 2, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand, they're delivered. Very similar to Adam and Eve having dominion, but a different kind of dominion now. Verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And you can imagine the animals hearing this, perhaps. Maybe they didn't understand it, but like, Bob the giraffe was like, did you, did you hear that? Don't be giving that kid a ride, because he may be riding you right into the fire, right? And I think that that got to sound pretty awesome for people who've been sitting in the dark eating salad for over a year, right? Like, barbecue! Let's do this! Giraffe ribeye tonight? Like, hmm, that looks good. But that's a very different relationship, a relationship that could be easily abused. Because God basically says, in fact, He directly says, I give everything to you. Now, traditionally, when men are given everything... They don't do well. 
When men are given everything, they typically indulge in everything. Relative to creation and their sin, men definitely have a tendency to indulge, and that usually amounts to either adoring creation too much or abusing it. They either worship it as God or they act like God and exploit it to their own ends. And God tells Noah, as he tells him, eat what you want, I'm having a relationship with creation too. He reveals that um, he plans to save creation from the sin that men brought into the world. Now, it doesn't take an environmentalist to figure out that when you look around the world, it's pretty messed up. I mean, physically, like it's broken. Um, and that's because of sin. We understand that, that the spiritual brokenness for us, for example, manifests itself out in physical ways. The problem is we always focus on behavior, and we never deal with the heart. Okay, what is spiritually broken comes out in physical world. The same is with the earth. The earth and the animals, they are spiritually broken because of man's sin, and it manifests itself out in ways that we can see. In many ways, uh, we can look at a sunset and go, wow, that's awesome, and then go, that beautiful orange hue is made by that horrible pollution from that place over there. So at the same time, we see the beauty and this creation that is designed to proclaim the glories of God. It can actually happen, and we can see the brokenness too. A huge tsunami, a huge hurricane, whatever it is, we go, wow, we are so small. Earthquakes come. If you've ever been in an earthquake, you know what that's like. You suddenly feel like you are teeny. And as you go, wow, I am so small, God is huge. At the same time, you go, things are broken. I don't think this is the way things are supposed to be. That tsunami is amazing. That hurricane is, is dare I say, glorious. And then you see thousands of people killed. And you're like, I don't think that's what it's supposed to be like. So creation itself actually reveals to us that things are broken. And it also reveals to us the glory of God. And God is saying, look, I'm promising to fix those things. Because we can be tempted as a people to think that we can fix them. On, I do believe, just as he has told Adam and Eve, and he's telling Noah here, we are agents of healing in the world, and that includes creation. But don't think for a second that your amount and quality of recycling is going to fix the world. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't do those things. We're stewards here. But it does say, where is our hope? And you can imagine as Noah sees the world begin to break again, because it will, as he experiences another earthquake or an animal that is killing a weaker animal, you realize that things like natural selection are as a result of sin. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Pollution, not the way it's supposed to be. Atrophy where things just break down, not the way it's supposed to be. Result of sin. As Noah sees those things and, and maybe even works against those things, you can think like, oh, that feels kind of hopeless. And God says, look, don't put your hope in men fixing this. The beauty of God's promise to creation is more than this, just he doesn't promise 
He's not just promising, I'm not going to kill it or destroy it again. He's actually promising to save it. And, and in doing that, we're actually giving a little bit of insight into what final salvation looks like. And by salvation, I mean the final restoration. When all this is done, we're getting a little bit of a picture here of what it's going to look like. We wrongly believe, and maybe this isn't you, so I've heard people believe this, that our final destination in heaven is like this place where we hang out in heaven, we play harps, we lay around in clouds, um, and, and, you know, feast with Jesus at this table that's like, you know, where everything's glowing, like whatever. We have this picture, right, from culture, from how we're raised, not just worldly culture, of like this ethereal place. Like, do we understand that in the book of Revelation, we see the new heavens and new earth coming down? And we see that God intends to restore all creation, and that there's a perfection and a completion where we get to experience in a, in a very way like an existence in the eternal state that's in the presence of God, but it's in a fully restored creation, where it's tangible, where we in many real ways like work, but we work gloriously in enjoyment, where there are actually animals and trees and things of that nature. That's what we see with the new heavens and new earth. See, because of our sin, creation temporarily suffers along with us, but there's, dare I say, even a redemption and a restoration for creation. Romans 8 tells us that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. Creation's waiting too. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. In other words, it wasn't its fault. It was ours. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, knowing the ways of men, again, Noah's got to be a little leery because he's going to see it's not going to take much time for the world to get dirty again and corrupt again and broken again. And God simply says, don't trust in men to fix it. I am fixing it. And his promise is not just for a little bit of a better place. It's complete restoration. That's his ideal. Hold on to that. Relationship with creation. He also, in his covenant, makes a promise to restore relationships with people. That's another obvious place where we see things are broken. Maybe you have perfect relationships with everybody. You are a unicorn, okay? <laughs> the truth is, relationships with people, whether it be in marriages, with family members, with neighbors, with friends, with strangers, whatever, are evidence of both the glory of God and the sinfulness of men. But God makes a covenant with um, creation, and he extends it to all the people that we born from Noah. He says, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Okay, so let's just, A plus B equals C, right? Any child that's ever born comes from Noah. Okay? Because everyone else is wiped out. Noah's family is the only ones left, his sons. Okay? So what that means is that 
God's talking about everyone that's ever born, whether they believe or not. Everyone that's ever born. God has an ideal for relationships and a plan to restore them. He intends for relationships to be healed with one another. Now, before the fall, we kind of remember relationships before sin were enjoyable, they were cooperative, they were good. But after the fall, what are they? Well, critical, competitive, hostile. Not all relationships, but most have those experiences at some point, and that's not God's ideal. And the negative progression of relationships, like how you see sin affect relationships in the same way you see sin screw up the world and get more polluted and broken, it's no more evident than, than Cain and Abel, right? Adam and Eve, sin comes into the world by eating a fruit. They're like, okay, well, that was a bad choice. All this sin comes into the world, and then their sons murder one another. And you see pretty quickly that like, well, that's not God's ideal, And imagine how bad it got relationally because there was 1,500 years between Cain and Abel and Noah. And if your beginning point is the murder of brothers, you can imagine what 1,500 years did to relationships, messed it up even worse. And so what's Noah thinking? I know how bad relationships get. Where am I going to hope? Where am I going to expect things to go better? Well, it's not because of men. God declares, look, interesting verses in verse 5 and 6. For your lifeblood, I'll require a reckoning. From every beast, I'm going to require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I'll require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So, in Genesis 7, we know that God destroyed every living, breathing, fleshly thing on the face of the planet. And contrary to what Noah might think because of that fact, like, you just killed everything, life must not be that important to you. God says, life's really important to me. Relationships and people are really important to me. And the thing about this is that this verse has been used oftentimes about capital punishment, things of that nature, and um, I guess you could use it for that. I don't think that's really what it is. And I kind of think that's not what it's about because if it is about capital punishment, then we have to create a new judicial system to condemn sharks, alligators, and bears, which is what God said he's also going to hold an account for, which we don't have and would be weird, right? All right, alligator, you're on trial for eating that person. Dumb. So what this is really is revealing what God's attitude is towards people and towards relationships, and giving us a picture of his ideal. And his ideal is that people will do good to others, believe it or not. They will do good to others, not based on merit, but based on their maker. That made in the image of God, we will love. Especially those who are weak. And in our culture today, who is that? It's the unborn. Those who right now are being murdered, millions of babies who can't speak for themselves, 
God expects us as His people because He's made a promise to those children. And He expects us as those people to help step up and defend the unwanted. Do you realize, statistically speaking, that if one family adopted one child right now in the foster care system, the foster care issue would not be an issue in the state of Washington. One family in every church. It would be eradicated. And then there's the unclean. And we're talking about the people who do not have a voice, the people who are most vulnerable, the people who are most difficult to love. God makes a promise not just to individually save people. He says, I am saving a people. I am saving a community. My plan is to restore relationships. And Noah is sitting back going, yeah, right. Just as we are. Because we're thinking it's dependent upon us. And Noah's going, I've seen mankind. I've seen what they've done to the world. I've seen what people do to each other. It's great that you're making this promise, God, but it's not just a normal promise, right? God's covenant is a saving relationship. God's covenant is a promise to do something. Not just to not do something. And this is why he gives us this sign. This rainbow, right? And my hope is after today, you you look at this a little bit differently. This covenant sign. Knowing men, we have to ask ourselves, how is God going to do this? Because they certainly can't. There's this thing called grace. And grace is when you enter into relationship planning to love the unlovable. Planning to forgive those who are definitely going to need forgiveness. Planning to fulfill a covenant that they will never be able to fulfill. Right? What was the first covenant? The first covenant, like, obey, don't eat the tree, everything will be fine, and men proved they couldn't. But they needed to. And so the covenant relationship is a relationship of grace where it says, I'm going to do everything that's necessary to maintain and actually restore this relationship. It says in verse 12, God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. Your NIV might say rainbow. It ought not. I say it ought not because they're using it to describe what they know is actually in the sky, but it's not actually in the language. But I'll set my bow in the cloud. It should be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I'll remember. This is the sign that God chooses to help us understand how He is going to restore all those relationships. Okay. The rainbow today has a little bit of a different meaning in our culture. It has many interesting and very unbiblical meanings attached to it. But here's the truth of the matter. 
I don't think we need to spend our time condemning all the uses of the rainbow, but what I want us to believe as the people of God is that this is one of the clearest symbols of the gospel. You go, I thought it was just God's promise not to flood the earth. Yeah, it's that, and so much more. Contrary to popular belief, it's not about diversity. It's not about second chances. It's not about choosing love. A rainbow is a gospel sermon in the sky. And my hope is that you'll remember it every time you see it. And because, as I'll explain, it's a gospel sermon, we should not be surprised when that is the symbol that is hijacked by the culture today. That's why it's hijacked. I mean, you're wondering like, why they didn't pick any other symbol to represent these different things. I'm telling you, it's because the disposition of men's hearts is against the one true God. And they exchange the truth of God for a lie, and they often, like the enemy, use some of the truth of God and pervert it to proclaim their lies. Let me tell you about this rainbow. First and foremost, it says, when I bring clouds over the earth, it's important to understand that the rainbow comes after clouds. The rainbow comes after clouds. Practically speaking, the rainbow does not appear until after dark clouds. At the times, the rains will come, darkness will rain, clouds will cover, And it will seem bad. In the Northwest, we know the rain all too well. Perhaps we're so used to it that when the darkness is here, it pretty much is ignored. But if you're in Hawaii and the clouds come, you think, I just wasted a lot of money on a trip, right? Clouds are bad. Rain comes. And the picture is this, that God is communicating to Noah and to all of us that before we can be restored to God, we must come face to face with our sin. With our brokenness. In fact, I believe being overwhelmed by our sin. Not to despair, but being honest about it. Facing it. And being... Overwhelmed by it precedes being overwhelmed by God's grace. Grace is rich when sin is acknowledged. The rainbow only appears after the rainstorm. It's biblical to say there is no grace without sin. The rain always comes first. Put that on the shelf for a second. God also says, I'm going to set my bow in the cloud. The rainbow, or the bow, hangs in the sky, just like you see the picture. Now the word rainbow actually comes out of Old English. The word rainbow is, is used to describe, obviously, a bow more of a circle if you want to be scientifically correct, but a bow that appears in the sky after rain, so rainbow. But the Hebrew word for bow is different. 
The Hebrew word for bow is an archer's bow, a warrior's bow, a battle bow. And as God sets his bow up in the clouds, he is saying very clearly, I'm no longer going to aim my bow and I'll never again unleash a wrath, wrath-filled arrow full of water at the earth. Like a warrior's bow, he is hung it up on the wall. And it's interesting, I remember one pastor was noting, I'm so glad, glad he didn't hang it the other way. Because then you'd be a little uncertain, wouldn't you? At any moment, the bow could be plucked. Imagine what Noah must have felt when he saw the first clouds. Remember the first time he saw clouds? Epic flood. The first time he saw rain, the entire earth was destroyed. So God says, when I bring the clouds... I know it's going to trigger you, Noah. When I bring the clouds, and you can imagine Noah going, oh no. A little drip. We did it. We went too far. What did you, go, what'd you boys do? Right? And you notice how many times he tells him, this is the sign of my covenant, Noah. This is the sign of my covenant, Noah. This is the sign of my covenant, Noah. Don't freak out. It's the sign of my covenant. The dark clouds are coming, but God says, I'm going to set my bow up. It will never bring a flood again, Noah. The clouds are going to come, but it's never going to bring a flood. But when we see what happens, like what actual the bow is, not just figuratively a bow, but like this is this beautiful bow. Now today we don't look at it as, as beautiful, but imagine if people had never seen that before. And you go, oh my gosh. It is really beautiful. And you know what makes that beauty possible? Darkness and light coming through it. It's where the darkness and the light meet. You need both, right? It's the, the waters falling and the sunlight comes through that darkness, if you will, and creates something beautiful. And it is God who brings the clouds. And guess what? It's God who brings the sunshine. And it's God who sets his bow up there to communicate something to us. At the conjunction of darkness and light, God's grace appears. And it's a beautiful reminder for Noah, who, probably unlike any of us will ever experience, had one of the ugliest experiences possible. He was in the middle of a holocaust of global proportions. And the rainbow brings him comfort, declaring that, you know what? What you went through, Noah, is not going to define you. My promise is going to. I know when the clouds come, Noah, you're going to be thinking about um, how horrible that was, but I want your eyes to remember and see the beauty. God can and does make beauty from ashes. 
and the rain brings beauty. Now, you probably know where this is going. But before we get there, or as we go there, you should take note of verse 16. It says, when the bow is in the clouds, okay, so when all this has happened, Noah, when the bow is up there, I will see it. You notice he never tells Noah to remember. He's telling him what I'm going to do, Noah. Noah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring the clouds. I'm going to bring the sunshine. I'm going to put this rainbow in the sky. And then guess what? I'm going to remember. Know what he says? I will see it and I remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. He doesn't promise a rainbow every time it rains, although the northwest would be full of more people than it is now. But what he does say is that when the rainbow does appear, I will remember my promise. And think back to what I said about God remembering his promise. When God says he will remember, that's a declaration of action, not just a statement of, by the way, I haven't forgotten. It is declaring that he is acting toward his people, towards creation itself to save it. See, there will be more than enough sin and corruption in the world to deserve multiple floods every year. But God says, I will stay my bow. More than that, I will remember my promise. And it's more than just not to destroy. It is to make it new. Jesus said in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. See, the rainbow is, is a gospel sermon. And the darkness and the clouds of our disobedience, of our sin or the sins that have been committed against us, reveals that we are broken, that the world is broken, that we really deserve wrath. And despite our efforts, and sometimes because of them, things get darker. The world gets darker. Relationships get more difficult. And we could easily become hopeless. But God's sign in the sky says, not just I haven't forgotten, but that I am moving. I am acting. That salvation is near. And that it is purely a result of me. So don't lose hope. The rainbow is a reminder of grace for us. And as I've said, unlike the original command to Adam, and the original covenant with Adam, this is not about you'll be blessed as long as you obey. On the contrary, he doesn't announce anything Noah must do. He declares what he needs to believe. That's it.
Our God does not give us what we deserve. Praise God that he is not fair. Fairness is getting exactly what we're owed. And what we're owed is wrath. He hung up his bow bow by grace. But perhaps the bow isn't actually hung up as much as it's just turned. And that actually the bow is just set upward. Because we do know that sin still needed to be punished. And God couldn't just forget corruption or he would be unjust. But if he didn't save us, it could be argued he was unloving. And God is both holy and loving. And so the arrow is pointed upwards. And the next time he would unleash his wrath, he would unleash it on himself, on his own son. See, God's wrath, the reins, if you will, of his wrath, the just reins of his wrath, and the glory of his love come together on the cross. That is where darkness and light meet. The darkness of our sin and the glories of the Son who says, I am the light. They come together in that moment and that is where we find grace. Not because of what we have done, not because of what we've achieved, but simply what we have believed about that. And it is beautiful. Imagine the disciples, right? The day of the crucifixion, not a darker day that could have been. In fact, what happens at the moment Jesus dies? Clouds cover. Because in that moment, all that wrath was poured out on His Son for us. And it was a dark Friday, it was a dark Saturday, but you know what Sunday was like? Beautiful. As light burst forth, And dare I say, the rainbow of his resurrection came true and God said, I've done it all. Just believe. God had done everything necessary to restore the relationship with himself, man's relationship to one another, and even man's relationship to the world. And we don't fully experience that restoration now, but we can begin to experience it right now, through Jesus Christ. Which is where we come to this. I don't think we understand the beauty and the darkness of this. Communion is our new covenant. And the cross is our new rainbow, if you will. Communion is the covenant that Jesus instituted for us. And what He tells us to do, He said, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of Me. In fact, He said, you're proclaiming My death every time you do this, that the clouds are real, that the clouds are deserved. He says, do this in remembrance of Me, and we do. And as we take this cup, which is Christ's body and His blood shed for us and His body broken for us representing the bread. As you take those cups, you are very 
in a very real way, remembering the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But do you understand that as we take this cup and we remember, God says, I'm remembering. What did I say about remembering? It's not that God's like, oh yeah, I will kill Sam today for sinning. It's God acting towards me. It's God moving to actually save me in a very real way. It's not that when I'm not taking communion, I'm not saved. It's that He is helping me experience that salvation again and again. He is moving to save us. He is moving to restore relationships. He is moving to heal this world. Even when I come to the table full of clouds, drenched in a rainstorm, the light of the cross comes piercing through and makes us beautiful. When we participate in this covenant, when you walk up, for those who are in Christ, this is for you. If you're not in Christ, if you're not a believer, I, I compel you to repent. I compel you to turn away from your sin and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I compel you to understand that this world is not all there is in one day, and it can be flooded, but it is going to be burned up, and a new heavens and new earth is going to be there, and we'll be restored to relationship completely face-to-face in the presence of our God. But when you participate right now in this covenant, for those who are in Christ, we remember our sin. We acknowledge our sin. We declare our weakness. But you know what? He remembers grace. He remembers I've forgiven you. He remembers I've redeemed you. He remembers I love you. He remembers that I started a work in you, and I ain't done, and I'm going to bring it to completion, so don't have hope in yourself. Trust me. Believe me. I'm going to close with the passage that Paul wrote about this experience, and I pray that it will take on new meaning for you today, and that you will approach the table perhaps differently as you come through the clouds, And let the light shine bright and make you beautiful. 1 Corinthians 11.23 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, dark night, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim the Lord's death and he remembers the resurrection and we experience grace in this moment and it's glorious. I pray that you will enjoy that today. Let's pray.